0: All right, guys, if you have uh, your Bible, open and find Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. This is a great chapter in the book of Revelation. One of the more well-known ones, at least. And with it also, we're coming to the, the last chapter of the penultimate, that is next to last section of the book. Just one section left. That would be chapters 20 to 22, which um, in some ways is saving the best for last because those chapters, Revelation 20, 21, and 22, are some of the most beautiful and encouraging chapters in the book. But at the same time, chapter 19 for today is perhaps, in some ways, the most jaw-dropping, and if exciting is a word appropriate to it, perhaps exciting chapter in the book. And I think you'll see what I mean when I read it in just a we read it in just a second, if you haven't already read it for yourself. It's in this chapter, and I say that because it's, it's in this chapter, that we have the, the, the fullest description of the return of Christ um, anywhere in the book of Revelation. For that matter, perhaps the fullest anywhere in the New Testament, say, for example, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 or a place like that. But just to get our bearings again, like I said, chapter 19 ends, it ends something, it ends the, the section that began back in chapter 17, which is going to be important when we come next week, uh, that that chapter 20 is not sequential chronologically with chapter 19. That's going to be important because when we come to just a preview of coming attractions, um, when... when when chapter 20 talks about this period of 1,000 years, it's often called the millennium. That is a very hotly debated topic uh, in terms of you know, eschatological end times kind of discussions. When is this 1,000 years? When is, and and uh, some, some believe that that 1,000 years that, in which Christ will reign on the earth is a period of time that, that comes... After his return, because chapter 20 comes after chapter 19. And the, when that, that means that when Christ, that's a premillennial viewpoint. So when Christ comes back, it's then that he's going to set up shop on this earth and reign for a thousand years. Before we get to the new heavens and the new earth. Um, but in a, in a, in a and, and many good, fine people believe that. And I don't, that, maybe that's right. My view is that chapter 19 ends a section, that chapter 20 begins a new section. So chapter 20 does not follow chronologically after chapter 19. So whatever that thousand years is, which we'll talk about next week, is not something that's going to happen after he comes back. Um, But anyway, chapter 19 ends this section uh, that began back in chapter 17. And like we have seen in every, ch- every section of Revelation since chapter 12, which was the midpoint of the book, uh, this section has it, it at least began by focusing on the spiritual realities that are, that are at work and are at play behind what we see and experience in the world. In other words, we don't, live in a purely mechanical uh world we don't live in a a merely natural world we live in a in a supernatural world in a way that there are spiritual realities and spiritual forces going on in the heavenly places behind what we see and experience and remember that in chapter 17 that that uh it that chapter began by describing satan's activity in the world and and some of the tools that he has at his disposal. Those tools in chapter 17 were figuratively uh, uh, described there as the beast and the prostitute. And those those things represented the forces active in every culture to either uh, persecute believers or to lure and tempt believers away from faithfulness to Christ, or away from Christ altogether, if that were possible, but also to keep unbelievers blind to the glory of Christ and never come to saving faith. How, how, how does that happen? Um, by, by Satan using these tools to cause people to fall in love with this world uh, and the pleasures and the treasures of the world so that they forget about God altogether. And then chapter 18, then, which we looked at last week, foretold the the great final judgment that is coming on Satan and the unbelieving world. We actually saw at the end of chapter 17 that God's judgment of the world actually begins before he returns. It actually begins, in small ways, in this world. Do you remember at the end of chapter 17 where it said that eventually the beast will hate the prostitute the beast will hate the prostitute Um, sin and evil will eventually turn on itself now in 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 this life and in this world and if we if we have eyes to see and we're paying attention to the world around us we actually see examples of this happening routinely Let me just give you one example. Think, for example, uh, and I don't want to get into really hot water, but this is an example. Think, for example, about some radical versions of feminism uh, that, and I'm talking about really, really radical, unbiblical versions of feminism, and which for decades, decades held near unchallenged sway, especially in academia, as a righteous cause, right? Right. That, fast forward to today, that thing which our culture for decades celebrated as a righteous cause, especially in some circles of it, is now itself seen as an evil in in the same culture, which now questions the very binary reality of men and women altogether. And and suddenly uh, the right side of history can find itself on the wrong side of history almost overnight. And it's and, it's, um, and, both, and and both the right side and the wrong side, both, from a Christian's viewpoint, are unbiblical and wrong. Sin is turning on itself. And, and, and often when that happens, it's not, have you ever noticed that it's not, and it's increasingly this way, it's not just a disagreement. It's, it's, not, it's not just a debate. It's vehement. It's merciless. One side wants to cancel the other side. Sin and evil will, in the world will never be content in itself and will constantly evolve into calling evil and wrong what it once universally celebrated as good and right. With predictable reg- regularity, the beast will grow to hate the prostitute in every culture. And chapter 17 said that this, this will happen as part of God's judgment. This is evidence of God's judgment on the world. Because God, chapter 17 said that, at the end of it, it, said God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose. So chapter, chapter 18, that, that we saw last week, prophesied the final judgment coming on this unbelieving world and in, in such certain terms that it was, it's written in the past tense, as if it's already happened. But it's still foretelling something that is coming and that we're coming to in chapter 19 today. In chapter 19... The judgments foretold in the last chapter become realities at the return of Christ. We'll read chapter 19 in just a second, but just to summarize what we're going to see, it's going to describe the triumphant return of Christ at the end of history. And and, and with his coming, it will both uh, be reward for believers and just retribution for unbelievers. So the first half of the chapter will describe the reward he's going to bring to believers when he comes. And the second half is going to describe in rather gruesome detail the the retribution and judgment given against all who oppose him. So with that said, let's let's read the chapter together. Hopefully you found Revelation 19 in your Bible, and if so, follow along with me as I read aloud, beginning in verse 1. John writes, After this I heard what seemed to be the the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Notice here we see this typical pattern again in in Revelation where he'll, he'll hear something, then he'll see something. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, it's a hard word. It's a sobering word. It's a graphic word. But it is, it's, it is your word. We, we are confessing to you our belief. What we just read is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth here. There's there's more here than we could ever dream to uh, to bring out in 30 or 40 minutes. Help us occupy ourselves with what you would have us to see. Give us minds to, eyes to see it, minds to understand it, hearts to embrace it, wills to obey it give me the help that I need to teach, and please give us all ears to hear, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's so much here. There just is. Um, it's uh, it's crazy how uh, the first half, little, little things like uh, it's so neatly uh, laid out between blessing and curse and Notice in, at the end of verse 5. so Verse 5, praise, praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. That's on one side of the ledger. Small and great, receiving His blessing. But notice on the other side of the ledger in verse 18, the judgment comes at the very end of verse 18, both on both small and great. You know, there's this balance between uh, the blessing and the, and, and the curse at his coming. And he's slaying them with, the, with uh, the sword coming out of his mouth, which just means his word. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God in Ephesians 6. But anyway, all right, there's a lot here. Um, and it's quite obviously, as I've said, divides into two starkly different scenes. And so each of those scenes are going to be our focus for the next few minutes. First, we'll consider... The Marriage Supper of the Lamb. That's the first half of the chapter through verse 10, 1 to 10. The Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And then second, we'll see the conquering Christ in the second half. That's where we're going to go. So let's get going. Um, And take a close look at the first half, The Marriage Supper of the Lamb. So the chapter opens in the first four verses with a scene of just deep rejoicing. So let's just walk through those verses. It begins in verse 1 with a multitude in heaven declaring hallelujah to the Lord. Why? They're saying hallelujah because salvation, for His salvation and His glory and His power, they belong to Him. And it simply says a multitude in heaven declared this. We're not necessarily told a multitude of whom. Um but it seems best to me at least to assume that it includes all the heavenly host, uh, angels, angelic beings, uh, believers who are already in heaven. I mean, I think that that's that's true. I think um, I think you know, uh, angels, angelic beings are there because if you look down in uh, in in verse, uh, 4 and 5 and it says the 24 elders I'll say something about them in just a minute but the four living creatures who I believe are angelic beings they are on the back end of this praise and they're saying amen to this and they're encouraging us to praise God so the angelic host is is is, is crying hallelujah but also believers who are there because again in verse 1 he is specifically being praised for his salvation we are the ones who experience His salvation. There is no salvation offered to angelic beings who may have sinned. But that, 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 that's elaborated on further in verses 2 to 4, where that same multitude is now seeing that, that the great day of judgment has now come in which, uh, one, all the redeemed of the Lord will be vindicated forever, and, and, and in which, two, all who did not seek His salvation or submit to His Lordship will be justly judged. As verse 3 puts it, forever and ever. Those in heaven praise the Lord both for his salvation and for his judgment. Then in verse 4, we're told, again, that the 24 elders, they reply saying, Amen. The 24 elders, I think, are, I can't say exactly who, but I think they are 24 who represent all the redeemed in some way in heaven. Uh, 12 for Old Covenant, 12 for New Covenant. They, they, are, they are representing all the redeemed saying, Amen. The four living creatures are there saying, Amen. And then there's this invitation in verse 5. To all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great, to rejoice that this day has come. Give praise to God. You know, um, it's, it's, just, it's just it's worth... I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this today, but I mean, I've, I've mentioned this before. It's worth our reflection. Um, it, when, when I say every passage you come to, you, you should be able to say, What does this teach me about God? And what does it teach us about us? And what it should it teach us to do? But even when you come to a passage like this, and they are praising God for the smoke that goes up forever and ever on the ungodly. What does that teach you about God? For some, it might say, they might say, well, that's heinous. Or they might be given eyes to see that it means that God is holy. That He's that holy. He is so holy and pure and right and true that that. When given eyes to see him that which our fallen sinful eyes see now as potentially heinous will in that day seem entirely right and entirely holy. But that's not you learn more of the why they're rejoicing this this great multitude because they're not only rejoicing because God is judging all who opposed him. That's not the full reason that they're they're rejoicing. As you come to verse 7 the primary reason for the marriage uh, for the rejoicing is that the marriage of the lamb has come the marriage of the lamb has come uh, throughout the New Testament Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom and his church is referred to as the bride and to the to the original first century readers of, of Revelation this scene would have been filled with really rich imagery because um, it was somewhat similar to in that that tradition when a it would have been what, the reason it would, because it was, it was of their familiarity with their own wedding and, and uh, their marriage customs. So in that tradition, when a, when a woman uh, was betrothed to a man, um, it, was, it was somewhat similar to our, our idea of an engagement period before the wedding, but it was different than that. Insofar as in that tradition, the betrothed couple was in sort of at that moment, considered in some senses legally bound legally bound in the eyes of the law the the betrothal the betrothal would have been done in front of witnesses and would have had uh, would have been more legally binding than our present idea of engagement this is why by the way this is why like when you re- when you start reading your new testament at the beginning and you have the 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 uh, virgin conception of christ in the in mary's womb by the holy spirit uh and when joseph finds out that she was pregnant it said he had decided to divorce her secretly but they were merely betrothed why was divorce uh necessary because it was more legally binding than our engagement would be now they didn't just call it off it was more formal than that but carrying on in that tradition of betrothal in the in the hebrew tradition once that betrothal had taken place The potential husband would typically supply a dowry for the bride. Um, Sometimes money, we see that uh, in the book of Genesis, for example. Sometimes doing some kind of work or service. We see this in Genesis. Think, uh, Think Jacob and Laban for the hand of Rachel or Leah. But then, at the conclusion of the betrothal period, the bride would make herself ready and the bridegroom would come and receive her and take her away by a great procession to the wedding feast, either at his home or at his parents' home. And that feast and that festival would often last for several days. It kind of gives you another uh, perspective on the horror, doesn't it, in John 2 when they ran out of wine. They may have had days to go still. Anyway, take that image. Take that image that the original readers of this book, including John himself, would have had and then consider the full significance uh, that they saw when they read in verse 7 that the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Jesus is the bridegroom. And Revelation has already made it clear that His bride is, as chapter 3, verse 5 put it, all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And isn't it interesting... That it's not called the marriage supper of Christ. It's not called the marriage supper of the Lord. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And it just reminds us that Jesus has already paid the dowry for His bride at His first coming through His sinless life, His sacrificial atoning death, His triumphant resurrection. And now, with his second coming, the marriage feast has arrived, and it says the bride, the church, will have made herself ready. How? Text says, through a lifetime of righteous deeds. The bride has made herself ready with, and end of, what it, how? The, 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 the end of verse 8, it was with the righteous deeds of the saints. Look at verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We're clothed in our righteous deeds. That's how we make ourselves ready. But don't read that to mean that He has saved us, and we need to earn the rest of it ourselves, and make ourselves ready for His coming by doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this, because nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. Because every good thing that we do, every, every ounce of obedience that we give, Ephesians 2 says, that is all what God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Uh, Ephesians 5, 25 and 26 says that Jesus gave himself up for his bride, for the church, that he might sanctify her. And so that we have, we and our righteous deeds, again, Ephesians 2.10, our righteous deeds are His workmanship in us. So what does Paul say, again, not just here, but like, he didn't say this at all. (laughs) But what does Paul say in Philippians 2.12 and 13? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You do it for, because it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You do it. How can I be confident that you will? On what grounds do I assume that you will? Because God is at work in you first. And not just in some generic way. To will and to work. Why do you, if I tell you to work out your own salvation, why do I think, Christian, that you will will to do that? Because God is willing in you. Why do do I think you will exercise yourself and and give yourself to these means of grace and obedience? Because God is already working in you. We work, but only because God is already working in us. The harder we work, the more we may be sure that He is working in us already. And all this is why even here in verse 8, it says that these righteous deeds of the saints that, that the bride has made herself ready in, These righteous deeds are sovereignly granted to us by the Lord. Look again carefully at verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, which is our righteous deeds. God grants everything to us in our salvation from the first day until the last. It's It's not like that should not make us passive. It should make us work all the harder... And be happy to give God the glory. I think we'll be surprised. It's the same, it's the same, it works the same on the other way. Do you remember uh, in, in, in uh, Isaiah 40 something, somebody knows the chapter. But when, when, when God is, is prophesying about Cyrus and he says, I equip you though you do not know me. And, and, and the ungodly rulers are boasting about what they have done and what they have decided and what they can do. And God is saying, you don't know it, but I'm doing this in you. I'm equipping you to do this. And in the same way, we might think that we are working hard, and that's fine. But one day you're going to wake up and say, that was all the Lord in me. That was all the Lord from the first day into the last. And even further, it's why in verse 9, it says, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited, literally called effectually, not just a general call of the gospel, repent and believe, but that call that the Holy Spirit did in your heart to bring you to saving faith. Blessed are those who are invited or called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It doesn't say deserving are those blessed are those this is why John simply falls down in worship he worships the wrong person 1st must show you how brilliant and, and awesome angels are <laughs> and the angels are, don't do that <laughs> uh, yeah worship God and John's like oh yeah but that should be our response as well and truthfully one day it will be one day every knee will bow And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a happy happy half of a chapter. Uh, Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. A threefold hallelujah. And an amen right in the middle of it. But let's take a quick look at the second half of the chapter, at the conquering Christ. I'll try to highlight just what is very, the very obvious truth of this passage just briefly. We may have time to. I think we will have time to discuss it around our tables. So whereas the first half of the chapter focuses mainly on those who are on one side of the ledger, namely those who are on the forgiven and redeemed side, the second half of the chapter, beginning in verse 11, focuses on the other side of the ledger, namely those who have opposed Christ and His church. Last week when we looked at chapter 18, I said the judgments foretold in that chapter are the ones that come to fruition in this chapter, which means... Which means that the, that the that's another indication that that when Jesus Christ returns, whenever that will be, I can't I can't guarantee that he is he is coming soon, but it's imminent. But when he comes, the judgment happens, and that's the end. New heavens and new earth. Right? Because That's the way that it's presented in Revelation, that the judgments are foretold in chapter 18, chapter 19. Boom, it comes at its second coming. Um, If you were to, and if you were um, reading your New Testament uh, from, from beginning to end, you would know long before chapter 19 that when Jesus returns, he will be coming with complete authority, absolute authority over all things. We learn that before we even get out of the first gospel. when After his death and resurrection, just before his ascension, he gives the great commission to his disciples. And in Matthew 28, 18, he prefaces his great commission with this preface, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that seems to be the explanation of one of my favorite verses in Revelation 19, namely verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, And he is a name written that no one knows but himself. Get you some of that. Eyes like a flame of fire. We've already come across that description. We came across that description of Christ in in chapter 1. And it was repeated in chapter 2 in the letter to Thyatira, uh, where Jesus described himself to the church in Thyatira, uh, and to us, by extension, as having eyes of a, as a flame of fire. And, 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 and in that context, eyes like a flame of fire, uh, it was indicating he sees everything. And not just what we do, but what we think in our minds, what we feel in our hearts, he sees it. Eyes like a flame of fire. He knows everything about us. And in this context at his coming, and at his coming for judgment, when it repeats that description, eyes like a flame of fire, it's reminding us that the judgment that is coming with him will be be with full and complete and infallible knowledge of those under his judgment. He doesn't make any mistakes in his judgment. He knows eyes like a flame of fire. And the other two descriptions given to him in verse 12, many diadems on his head. What's a diadem? Crown. Many crowns. And and a name that no one knows but himself. I think both of those other two descriptions reveal that not only does he have infinite knowledge to judge, eyes like a flame of fire, but the absolute authority over all things to go with it. Many diadems, crowns, that's easy to see that. Crowns, who do you put on, on whom do you put crowns, kings and queens? Authority. But a name that nobody knows but himself? What in the world? Throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the ability to to, to name something indicated authority over that thing. Um, And Genesis tells us as an illustration of that fact, when God uh, created man in his image... And as a part of being created in the image of God, He was given dominion over all things. And what did God do? He brought all the animals before Adam, and He named the animals. And whatever He called each living creature, that was its name, as illustrative of the fact that Adam, image of God, had dominion over them. Or think, for example... And there's a scads more examples. I'm just giving you two. Think, think of the book of Daniel. When, um, when um, Daniel and his three friends had gone into exile in Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar, most powerful man on the earth at the time, uh, had had taken control over Judah. Daniel and his three friends. His friends' names were. Can you think of their Hebrew names? Some. Uh, what? There you go, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. If you just said who was who were they, most people would go who. But when they took when they took Daniel and his three friends, they gave them new names. Belteshazzar, that's Daniel now. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's his three friends. If 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 you said who are who are uh, Azariah, Mishael, they're what? Who's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Oh, they did a pretty good job of renaming them. If they weren't just wicked names calling on other gods, but they renamed them as Nebuchadnezzar trying to say, "I have authority over you. I am your king." So biblically, the ability to name something was a symbol of authority over them. We name our own children as parents. Why are my kids named what they are? Laura and I said, that's what it is. I have authority over my children. could have been anything else. Well, bring it back to Revelation 19. Jesus has a name that no one knows but himself. We didn't ascribe it to him. That is complete and utter authority. That's a, different, that's a different way of saying he has a name that is above every name. And this authority and imagery of his name that no one knows but himself is confirmed again just a few verses later in verse 16 when it says, On his robe and on his thigh. Not sure why the thigh, but he has a name written. King of kings. Lord of lords. And he comes with that authority at his second coming to exercise judgment on unbelievers. Verse sixteen, I mean excuse me, verse fifteen says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword. That's just his word. He will slay the nations with a word. It says he will strike down the nations and will rule them with a rod of iron. That's picking up on the prophetic language about Christ in Psalm two and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Think about how many words. I'm always amazed how long it takes me to get that whole phrase out of my mouth. Think about how many words are just piled up to describe that judgment. Treading the winepress of the fury, of the wrath, of God the Almighty. I mean, the description, and the description given after that is, is, is well, it's gross. I mean, it's just gruesome. Verses 17 we and 18 about the birds uh, coming and gathering for the supper and, and eating, eating their flesh and, and gorging on their flesh. That's taken from Ezekiel 39, verses 17 to 20. It's even more graphic in Ezekiel. Just read it on your own time. And, and it's just a common Old Testament uh, imagery for the... For the judgment and curse of God when uh, someone dead is just left out there and the birds come and eat their flesh. It's, It's imagery for somebody who's outside the covenant of God. And notice how it is worded here in such a way to make it clear that all unbelievers, no matter who they are in this life, will be judged. It, it almost goes from greatest to least. Did you notice that when we read the, that list? It goes from, in, verses, uh, in verse 18, it goes from kings to captains to mighty men to free men, slaves, small and great. It goes down the list of stations. In chapter 18, when these things were being foretold, we noted how there was still there an opportunity for repentance. There's no opportunity here. And foolishly, they don't even seek it because in verse 19, it says the nations will fight back, the nations will gather their forces and they will make war against him, but it's futile. In verse 20, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire that Isaiah 66:24 24 makes clear is everlasting and the same judgment befalls all those who follow them well to wrap up uh, the Bible is God's word I hope you know that by now it is completely unified in, in, in all it says and what we see here in Revelation 19 is, 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 is the full playing out It's the full playing out of um, the ancient prophecy of Isaiah 45, verses 22 to 25. Just, Just listen, or you can turn and read. I don't know. Isaiah 45, 22 to 25. God says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. And here's here's what we see played out in Revelation 19. To the Lord shall come and be ashamed all those who were incensed against Him. And in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel, that is all believers, shall be justified and shall glory. One coming, two drastically different outcomes. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I pray that you would, uh, you would help us to be encouraged by this rather, uh, this rather strong passage. The bride here says, uh the bride has made herself ready. Uh you know, it's uh and it, which is true because because our sanctification doesn't happen apart from our effort. But uh anything that we achieve ourselves is granted to us, it says, so thank you for making us ready. Uh graciously. And uh Help us then to read a passage like this. Know the salvation that we have in Christ. And even when it is a little fearful to read about that judgment, it ought to be. Help us to be able to read the second half of chapter 19. And if we're in Christ, we can still say hallelujah. 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 Amen. Thank you for this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.